Hi, I'm Rosie. Today's Bible reading is from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and calls us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Figlius and Homogenus. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onsiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Hello everyone, I'm Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at Wollongong Baptist Church and adding my welcome to Mark's. Wherever you're connecting with us from, I'm glad that you are. Today we're starting a new series that we've called Entrusted. That title hopefully makes you think of something of great value, of something received from another, something that you guard with your life. Over six weeks, we're going to work our way through a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. It, it is extremely personal and the words of chapter 3 verse 16 will probe deeply into our beliefs and practices, rebuking, correcting and training us in righteousness. As always, we need God's enabling to understand and apply this, so let's pray. Father God, we do thank you so much that this personal letter between Paul and Timothy has become a part of Scripture, that it has been entrusted to us so that we can learn and understand how it is you want us to live. Uh, we pray that as we think about it, uh, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, 
that you would show us how to live in a way that's a right response to the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I became a pastor, I had two quite different jobs. In the first one, I worked in a bike shop. I learnt my role there on the job, observing my boss, being instructed by him, on occasions being corrected by him. Initially, there was a lot of being told what to do, but over time I got better at my role to the point where we would discuss the best way to do things, at times even disagreeing as to what the best method was. My second job was as a physio. Learning to be a physio was a very different process. I joined a class of over 200 students sitting in lectures, attending tutorial groups and doing a lot of reading and writing of assignments. There were practicals in which I observed experienced physios, was guided by them as I made my initial attempts, and at times was assessed by them. On reflection, I think that both systems have strengths and weaknesses. By getting my hands dirty at the bike shop from the very first day, my learning was all practical and driven by real needs. My boss's relationship with me and close observation of my work meant that he could give me immediate feedback. But there can be limitations associated with learning from just one person. Even if they happen to be brilliant at their job, it doesn't always mean that they are also capable of passing on their knowledge and skills. If they have always done their job in a certain way, they, they maybe won't be open to newer, more effective ways that have been developed. I think that university courses attempt to get around this problem, and so, at least in theory, the best of research and practice is brought together into a course that is studied before going out to work. Students gain a foundational body of knowledge and skills from multiple experts that they will then continue to develop into the future. And I, for one, am very glad that the doctors I've seen and the accountant whose services I've used were, were not newbies on their first day, just giving it a go with the boss watching on. Now, clearly, neither form of training is what's going on in 2 Timothy. But that idea of an expert passing on a body of knowledge and skills to an apprentice or a student, of giving feedback to improve a new worker's techniques, is very much at the heart of this letter. Except that Paul is not Timothy's boss or a university lecturer. Verse 1, this is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul has a unique authority to teach. Imagine learning directly from Paul. He, he probably maintained incredibly high standards, but apart from Jesus himself, who better than Paul to learn from? This is learning from the original source. No doubt it gave Timothy the opportunity for some very clear lessons, but we need to appreciate that this is not Timothy's first day of training. We don't know exactly how long Timothy had already been pastoring, but he certainly wasn't an apprentice or a recent graduate. He had received the gospel even before he had met Paul. He had then trained with Paul, working alongside of him, and by the time this letter was written, he already had extensive pastoral experience, at least at the church in Ephesus, as 1 Timothy tells us, quite possibly in other places too. Timothy already has plenty of runs on the board and is long past needing basic instructions from his boss. This letter that we call to Timothy is designed for someone who is already doing the work, who has the skills and the knowledge. 
And yet Paul remains, retains the right to challenge and correct Timothy. It's part of his role as an apostle. Over the coming weeks, we'll see that 2 Timothy is also written with an obvious urgency. Paul is approaching the end of his life. He's in jail and knows that he is likely to be executed. Aware that his time is limited, Paul passes on what was probably going to be his final lesson. Unsurprisingly, then, it's a passionate letter, a letter that we have the special privilege of looking over Timothy's shoulder as he reads it. And in Paul's own words, it's addressed not from a a lecturer to a student, not even from a master craftsman to his favourite apprentice. This is a letter from a father to his son, verse 2. Now, Paul and Timothy weren't biologically related, but that's how close Paul considered their relationship to be. What we'll read into Timothy are not directives from Timothy's CEO, not his coach advising him what to do. It is someone deeply relationally invested who who wants the best for the one that he loves. So imagine getting a letter from prison and being told of your adopted dad's constant prayers for you from there, verse 3. It's easy to picture the new wave of tears the letter would have evoked as Timothy read of their sad parting and and Paul's desire to be reunited, verse 4. These emotions would have been further stirred by the mention of mum and grandma, verse 5, whose faith, Paul is convinced, is also Timothy's faith. My guess is that when Timothy first read this letter, there was quite a bit of emotion bubbling up and probably freely flowing down from his eyes. And directly on the back of all these stirred-up emotions, Paul gives his first instructions to Timothy. Verses 6 and 7. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Ouch. They're not harsh words or a stinging reprimand, but I'm quite confident that they didn't make Timothy smile either. It is clear that Timothy is being urged to change up a gear, to return to the highest standard that he had held to in the past, but has fallen away from. Paul has seen Timothy in the past on fire. That fire has died down and needs to be fanned back into flame. Like a wood fire that has burnt through the night, you you tend it in the morning, finding just a few charred blackened remnants remaining. But with care, some gentle blowing and new kindling, the, the orange glow that was hiding there quickly turns into flames. Throw on some logs and in no time it is able to return to its former best. If instead it is left alone, it will quickly become just a pile of ash. What has changed? that Paul assesses Timothy as a precarious coal in danger of being snuffed out. Well, in verse 8, Paul starts to flesh out the issue. Timothy's problem stems from the fact that he's tempted to be ashamed of both the message and its messenger, which is part of the basis of the title that we've given to this series, Entrusted. Timothy had been entrusted with an incredibly valuable message and had also been given the special role of entrusting this message to others. But there was a threat, not some theoretical, maybe if things go really bad, you might possibly slip into this type of risk. 
Now, Paul is worried that Timothy faces a clear and present danger, a temptation, in the words of verse 7, to, to give in to fear, to not love, to become undisciplined, to choose an alluring, alternative, more comfortable path, a path that Timothy has, in fact, already probably taken some tentative steps along. Paul fears that his son has already been influenced to turn from the gospel. And as people who have been likewise entrusted with the gospel and the role of entrusting the gospel to others, is this a threat that we also face? That's what we're going to consider as we look at chapter 1. Are you in danger of turning from the gospel? Are you in danger? The first way that this danger expresses itself is to be ashamed of the gospel message. Being ashamed of the gospel message is both incredibly logical and at the same time defies reason. It just depends on your perspective. How can there be such opposing views? Well, because the message or testimony about our Lord, verse 8, creates division. For those who accept Jesus as Lord, the gospel is the most precious message we could ever receive, that he would save us, verse 9, not because of anything we have done, but by grace in order to fulfil his plan, is absolutely incredible. Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, verse 10. Our greatest enemy, death, has been defeated for us. Received as the greatest news, the only source of shame associated with the gospel is that the only contribution we make to it is our sin. That God needed to come as a man and die in my place reveals the extent of just how bad my rejection of him and his ways was. The only shame is that which we must all humbly acknowledge when we turn to Jesus as our saviour, the shame that we broke the relationship and we couldn't fix it. But to some, that gospel sounds too good to be true. How can it be that simple? Absolutely everything already done for me? Surely we must make some kind of contribution our good deeds or church attendance, our morality or Bible knowledge must help to make us worthy recipients of eternal life, right? If you teach people that how good they act or how many people they help or how much money they give doesn't matter, then surely they won't even bother trying to be good. And so to the gospel is added by some things that we can do that attempt to make it more acceptable in the eyes of its critics more palatable to a wider audience, more logically consistent with everything else in our world that demands our efforts. But the gospel, the gospel message is salvation by grace alone. Others will question the gospel, insisting that death is the end and that the fairy tale of living forever is scientifically untenable. Expert opinions hold a great deal of weight for many of my non-Christian friends and family members. Some sneer at the idea of sin and a, a creator that can be offended by merely eating some fruit. I watched a YouTube clip just this week that mocks the idea that God needed to kill his son in order to forgive us. Why is it, the well-spoken critic asks, that I can choose to forgive someone who does wrong to me, but your God needs to execute his only son in order to forgive? What kind of a crazy God is this? And put in those terms, the gospel does sound outrageous. In the face of such criticisms and alternative interpretations, 
it's not surprising that a hesitancy to assert what many consider to be outdated concept creeps into our thinking. Our society calls us narrow-minded and bigoted because we won't accept that all religions are just different paths up the same mountain. Or we might accept our society's mantra that, that your personal beliefs are okay for you, just don't expect me to believe it. And as a result, over time, we begin to keep our beliefs to ourselves. We're weary of the arguments, the, the mocking, the being made fun of. We don't like causing trouble or, or making others feel uncomfortable. But if we ever suggest or accept an alternative to Jesus, Paul evaluates that as being ashamed of the gospel. His command to Timothy and to us in verse 8 is don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Perhaps even more famously, Paul expresses his own right attitude in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Others may write off the gospel as outdated or unreasonable. Some may try to adjust it to make it more acceptable to our society. But the message of the God who suffers and dies to restore us to relationship with him is the non-negotiable message. If you adjust the gospel, you break it. You simply cannot make improvements to the gospel. And so the application is that we must be open to sharing it with others, not arrogantly and insensitively, not demanding that they listen and insisting that we're right, but persuasively, creatively, insistently, lovingly. Clearly, this instruction is written for Timothy and so primarily applies for those who are already Christians. But if you are listening today and haven't yet accepted Jesus as your substitute, then the clear application for you is that you do need to humble yourself and accept this gospel message. You need Jesus as your saviour. Life, verse 1, is only found in Christ Jesus. This is the unchanging message of the gospel. It's good news, but only if you receive it. The second danger that we can succumb to is to be ashamed of the gospel messenger. As I've read to Timothy over the last few weeks, I think that this point has surprised me the most. Holding to the gospel is something that has been drummed into most of us fairly effectively. And so the reminder to do so comes as no surprise to us. Being a part of a church strongly influenced by the Reformation, we appreciate from history that the gospel can be altered and made ineffective when it isn't kept pure. But why is being ashamed of Paul also a turning from the gospel? And how does that apply to us anyway? As we've seen, Paul has already made much of the family members who played a foundational role in Timothy receiving the gospel. He has written of the role he himself played in Timothy's journey. And at the end of the chapter, he explicitly names those who have stood by him and those who have distanced themselves from him. Now, we don't have a clue who Phygelus or Hermogenes were, but Paul says they have deserted him. That means at one point in time, they were a part of Paul's team. They had been entrusted with the gospel and were working together to entrust it to others. But they've gone and left Paul on his own. Why? Had they accepted some other gospel? 
Was it politically dangerous to be linked to Paul? Were better jobs available if you were willing to tweak the message a little? We, we simply don't know. But regardless of what caused them to distance themselves from Paul, in contrast, Onesiphorus is the example that Paul wants Timothy to follow. Again, we know nothing about Onesiphorus except what Paul tells us. Verse 16, Onesiphorus had often refreshed Paul, probably meaning that providing for Paul's needs was his consistent practice over a long period of time. And more than that, he had also searched hard in Rome to find Paul, verse 17. Again, we don't know the details, but at some point, Onesiphorus had travelled from Ephesus, where Timothy was the pastor, to Rome. Evidently, Paul had been imprisoned in a location that wasn't easy to find or access. But because of his commitment to the gospel, Onesiphorus searched and searched until he found Paul. He did what was needed to stick by his mate. Mateship is an ideal that is considered synonymous with being an Aussie. I've got your back. You can rely on me. Mates through thick and thin. But the ideal of faithfulness to friends is not unique to any nationality or period of time. Anne Shirley called them kindred spirits. Marriage vows promise for better or worse. And the opposite just goes to prove the point. We have terms like fair weather friends. Job's criticism of his three so-called friends that came to comfort him in his loss is that they're like intermittent streams in the desert. Jesus' parable of the prodigal son speaks of friends who are only there while the money benefits them. By raising these contrasting examples of people who stick with him or distance themselves from him, the implicit question is, Timothy, are you only going to stand with me while you get the benefits of the gospel? Will you allow distance to set in when things get rough? With your mentor in jail for preaching about Jesus, it's not hard to imagine why Timothy was worried that if he was too bold about this, he would end up on death row too. And here, the logical implication of the gospel confronts our often comfortable Western Christianity. Verse 8. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The normal outcome of being entrusted with the gospel and entrusting it to others is suffering. It was the Lord Jesus' experience, verse 10. It was Paul's experience, verse 8 and 12. And by the power of God, Timothy must choose to embrace suffering too. Not go in search of it, but never ever run from it, which gives added meaning to one of the key verses of the whole book. Verse 13, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. While the gospel is a message, facts that can be written down and itemised, God has chosen to entrust the gospel to others via a messenger. It is the consistent way that God has chosen to make the gospel known. He doesn't send a book or diagrams or a video explanation. He sends a person who has been transformed by the gospel. The messenger's life is connected to the message, displaying it, confirming it, living it out so that the gospel can be understood. And Paul, being in jail, 
should have been a point of pride for Timothy, not something to be ashamed of. A friend of mine was talking with a church leader in Papua New Guinea. He asked what kind of people he was looking for to come and be missionaries there. I want people who will be a translation of the Bible before they try to do a translation of the Bible. It's a great reminder that our lives matter, that our walk must match our talk, that we practice what we preach. The gospel messenger is a walking, talking, living demonstration of the gospel. It had been Timothy's own experience. And so as Timothy is tempted to shift a little from what his mum had taught him, as, as Paul's imprisonment makes Timothy afraid to acknowledge their connection, Paul insists that to turn from the gospel messenger is to turn from the gospel. To receive the gospel is to join with others in suffering for the gospel. And so if you are a Christian, reflect with gratitude on those who have played a part in you coming to trust in Jesus as Lord. Give thanks for the apostles and the following generations that entrusted the gospel to the next generation. Give thanks for the reformers who literally faced death to ensure that we received the unmodified gospel. Give thanks for faithful parents or relatives, for Sunday school teachers, pastors, school teachers or SRE teachers. They may not have faced jail like Paul, but their steady commitment to teach and live out the gospel no doubt came with real costs. Give thanks for friends who were brave enough to go outside of their comfort zone to share the gospel with you. And don't think that you can receive all the benefits of the gospel with none of the costs. Our world is opposed to the gospel for all sorts of reasons. And keeping Jesus as Lord will mean that there will be pushback. It will require making hard choices to obey when going with the flow would be easier. But having been entrusted with such a priceless treasure, are you going to turn aside to try to make things a little bit more comfortable for yourself? Or like Paul, will you be someone who chooses to intentionally invest deeply, relationally in people, who wants the best for the ones that you love and so is willing to do the hard work, no matter the consequences to self? Having been entrusted with something so valuable, it's hard to imagine ever turning from the gospel. But as we set out on this journey with Timothy, let's be brave enough to ask ourselves, are we tempted? to be ashamed of the gospel message or the gospel messenger. In the power of God, let's choose to willingly suffer for the gospel. Let's hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that has been entrusted to us. It won't necessarily mean that we get locked up for proclaiming the gospel, but it will mean that we are increasingly like a Lois, a Eunice, a Paul or an Anisiphorus, faithful to the gospel message and its messengers. Not chasing after the latest fad or popular message, but sticking to the old, old story. In the power of God's spirit, living it out in ever increasingly clear ways. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have entrusted us with your gospel. Thank you that it has come to us through faithful messengers who held on to the gospel and were willing to suffer in order to pass on that gospel to us. Lord, we pray that you would protect us, help us to see when things are coming in that are attempting to shift us away from the pure gospel, 
trying to add things, trying to subtract things to make it more reasonable, more approachable from outside. Let us hold on to that message which you've given us. And Lord, help us to be ones who are thankful for the messengers, who who retain our faithfulness to those who've passed it on to us and are likewise faithful in passing the message to others too. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.